This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, what has COVID taught us? And we can't get a live audience today, but we can ask some big questions via some remote interviewing technology. We're asking today's big question to Dr. Timothy Hinks. Tim works as a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford and is an honorary NHS consultant. Tim is a researcher in immunology and leads a research team studying the mucosal immunology of the human airways. And he joins me now from Oxford in the UK. Tim, welcome to Bigger Questions. Hi, Rob. Great to be with you. Thank you. So mucosal immunology, is that something to do with mucus? Is that right? <laughs> um, no, it's mucosal. And um, oh, Sorry, I'm sorry for mispronunciation. They're the surfaces which line things like the airways or, um, or the gut, and they're really fascinating bits of the body because they're where the outside world meets the inside world. And so there's a real battle of immunology going on there. The body is trying to keep itself free from bacteria. The, uh, the outside world is full of nasty viruses and bacteria which are desperately trying to get into our bodies and eat us. So um, it's where it all happens. So you're sort of at the forefront of the battle of the inside and the outside, is that right? Immunology can seem like a dry field, but not when you realise it's a battle against the bugs. That's what's always really captured by imagination. Uh, are we going to win and, um, and stay sterile or are the bugs going to kill us? You know, one bacteria of TB is sufficient to kill a, a human, in fact, to kill a whole community. So this battle really matters. This is a big year for immunology in many ways because of the COVID-19 uh, virus. So the world's been deeply impacted. Now, before we, we talk a bit more about your work in that, Tim, maybe just want to paint us a bit about the picture in the, the UK, because the UK experience of COVID-19 has been a bit different to that in Australia. So can you share a little bit about what's happened in the UK? We have had, heading on towards 60,000 deaths, so about 45,000 so far, but still climbing. We had this incredible surge in March and April with 1,000 people dying each day in the UK. That's now dropped about 10 to 12 at the minute because lockdown really works we've had no other um tools against this virus other than social distancing and lockdown and that's how we cut the, the death toll from a thousand to, to, to ten per day uh, but if you go back to march um the first thing that happened was there was some people returning from ski resort in austria and a number of them caught this virus the first one it was all made national news and they were deep cleaning the gp surgery and things but within a couple of weeks, we realised that this virus was running rampant through the UK. And there was a critical decision that the government had to make, which was when to start lockdown. Mm. We tried a different approach here. We said it would be better to allow the virus to spread a bit so that people can catch it and we can develop some herd immunity. Mm. But unfortunately, we got the maths wrong. We just didn't know at the time quite how quickly it spreads silently amongst people. And because of that... Uh, by the time we locked down, uh, people were dying in their hundreds and within two weeks in their thousands. So it's been a bit of a tragedy. Mm. So how does that affect the psyche in the UK then of people when it comes to this virus? So actually, um, in, in Britain, we often talk about the spirit of the Blitz. People hark back to World War II when bombs were dropping out of the sky and whole communities were being demolished overnight. And it's felt a bit like that. We've said, oh, we're just going to get on with this. We're going to lock down. And in particular, the NHS has been seen as the heroes. And um, there's been this national thing on every Thursday evening, people stand outside their houses at um, seven o'clock and they clap for the NHS. 
and people put up rainbows in their windows saying um, thank you NHS, thank you heroes, thank you key workers. Actually, it's been a bit embarrassing working for the NHS because we've been doing our job. So when the virus emerged, though, did you foresee the impact that it would have? Yes, because we've been expecting this for a long time and we've been expecting the virus to be influenza. Now, I'm interested in emerging infectious diseases. That's a new virus or bacteria which has never been seen in the world before. So you might take HIV AIDS or multidrug resistant TB or Ebola or SARS. Actually, these things happen often. Every 18 months of the last 100 years, there's been a new emerging infectious disease. So uh, over the next 10 years, there'll be another six of these. Not many of them are as bad as coronavirus, but there will be more in our lifetimes. Uh, And so we need to be prepared. And that's why people are busy designing vaccines all the time. Oxford's been one of the world leaders in designing a vaccine against coronavirus. And that's because they were already designing it against the last coronavirus, SARS. And they were able to just mutate a component of the vaccine and be ready to go with their designs. Yeah. So there has been research into the vaccine of coronavirus. Now, and your, your research is in the area of respiratory research, but you're not necessarily connected to vaccine research, though, for coronavirus? No, I'm not directly involved in vaccine research, but uh, I have done some work on what's called the vector. So the Chadox vector is this mild virus which we use to get the vaccine into the body and um, in a little small way I've been involved uh, over the last few months in in completing some experiments on the Chadox vector. You never know where you're going to go with immunology. Each little nugget of information can help contribute to something else somewhere else. So um, these vaccines emerge out of a a large body of immunology research but um, yeah I'm not primarily a vaccine designer. So then maybe this does raise the big question then Tim. So is a vaccine possible for coronavirus? Uh, Yes, but it's absolutely not guaranteed. You see, we've not had a vaccine for the common cold ever, and that's another small RNA virus, and people have been working on that for many decades. Uh, A vaccine will be produced here because the whole of the world's biological sciences research community are focused on this one problem. We will get there, but uh, it's probably going to be another 12 months until all the proper data are through. There are a number of candidate vaccines, We don't know which one's going to work. Um, I'm optimistic we'll get there, but we don't know if it's going to be 100% effective. Mm. Probably it'll be 60, 70% effective, enough to help. But as we all know, we're going to live with this virus for quite some time. Mm. And actually, there are other coronaviruses out there which have become endemic. So it means that every winter we catch coronaviruses. They're not the fatal ones. And when the virus hangs around long enough, it will mutate and become a bit milder. Um, and we'll stop worrying about it. But we don't know how soon that's going to be. Mm. So you mentioned before that you've been doing some research uh, in the broad field. So how is your research connected then to the coronavirus vaccine search? Yeah, so um, I've been doing a few different things. Uh, As soon as lockdown happened, I went onto the wards and did some work there, and I soon realised I had to be doing something with my lab. So one thing we've been doing is running a clinical trial of a drug called azithromycin. I can tell you more about that. That's where we're testing it in volunteers to see if it helps make coronavirus symptoms less severe. Secondly, we've been doing bronchoscopies. So I get a flexible camera and um, uh, put it inside people's lungs. And I take samples of the mucosa, that airway uh, epithelial lining cells. And we take those out and we can do things called single cell sequencing, where we measure 33,000 genes in each of those cells we get out. We also 
get those cells which line the airways and we grow them in incubators um, for six weeks actually and then we can infect them with coronavirus or something called a pseudoparticle which is bits of the virus but not the whole thing. Obviously the virus is quite dangerous to handle so um, my lab can't do the infection but we, we pass our cells on to other people who do the infections and that gives us an insight into what things drive the immune response and that can help us design vaccines. Mm. So your work in some ways contributes to the broader body of knowledge that perhaps could help with a breakthrough for a vaccine. Absolutely. But look, I'm, I'm not the uh, not the centre of the vaccine uh, design thing. There's a massive global research effort going on here. Now, you mentioned before, Tim, that you've you had spent some time on the wards as well, uh, meeting COVID patients and so on. Tell us a bit about that experience. How was that? Yeah, it was fascinating. So I, I mostly run a research lab, but a month every year I... I, I lead a, a team of clinical clinicians on the wards and I did that in March and it was a very strange environment to work in back in March and April. The The whole hospital um, basically closed to virtually everything other than coronavirus uh, and a third of the people coming in to the front door of the hospital um, had coronavirus. We um, redesigned the inside of the hospital, we fitted huge extractor fans everywhere, we filled the hospital up with um, junior doctors who had been doing research or who were medical students. We qualified them early and we just put huge manpower onto the shop floor and designed um, flow streams for the patients. Um, And you would go around from patient to patient and say, oh, this person's got a dry cough and fevers and their chest x-ray shows these white changes in both lungs. This must be coronavirus. Uh, and then we would just have to work out how sick they were. Could they go home? Did they need to be kept in and given oxygen? Or did they need to go to intensive care? And I think the scary thing we found was that people who didn't feel very ill were coming into hospital and within six or 10 hours were intubated on intensive care on a ventilator. And it was just the rapid deterioration that you see. People get the virus, seven Days later, they're feeling ill, a bit breathless. But then between day 10 and 14, people with severe disease just suddenly become very short of breath uh, and and rapidly need this support. And um, although it was mostly people in their 60s and 70s, we were seeing some young people. And and the very old, we just didn't have capacity to, um, to put everyone on ventilators. So difficult decisions were being made. Being on a ventilator and spending a month on intensive care, unconscious with um, drugs being pumped into your body the whole time is no fun. And if you're 85 and you've got other medical problems, the the recovery from that is very difficult and it just wasn't going to be appropriate for some people. Uh, So that's tough. It sounds like an incredibly tough environment to to work in. Mm. And I think the hardest thing was a sense of loneliness people who were coming into hospital, we weren't allowing relatives in the hospital. And some people were suddenly facing um, serious illness and even death uh, on their own. Uh, And we were having conversations on FaceTime on iPads at the patient's bedsides with their relatives. And um, we all have a time to live and a time to die, but dying alone is, is not a good thing. No, no, no. So how did that move you then? Uh, um, 
Yeah, it's an emotional time, isn't it? Uh, you um, you just get on with the job and you do the interesting things and you make the decisions, but occasionally a patient will really hit home and uh, you need a bit of time out then, don't you? Mm. Um, but also, I'm a bit of an activist, so I guess it was doing those ward rounds thinking, this is hopeless, we've got to do something that led to me design my little clinical trial um, mm. just so that we could be could be doing something and it's been great talking to the junior doctors and the nurses about it. It's made everyone stop and think, which is, I guess, why I'm on this radio show now. We've, we've all been stopping and thinking, haven't we? The whole world mm. has been told to pause, just stop and think. Um, and it does strip away some of the little worries that you have from day to day. You know, mm. we worry about um, really irrelevant things. Uh, and our life is full of busyness that really doesn't matter in the long term. When your diary gets completely cleared because everything in it's been cancelled for the next year, when your lab's been closed down because you can't do any non-COVID research, when you can't see your relatives, you've got time to just pause and think and reflect. And I think that's been really helpful. I think it's been helpful for a lot of people. Mm. So for yourself, what has that led you to think about? Yeah, I think there's been a few things. One, how much of my busyness is really useful busyness that at the end of my life, I'm going to look back and think, oh, that was a good way to spend 10 years. Secondly, I've been thinking about um, mortality, that we are, we're all human. Um, early on in the first week when we were going into work, uh, my wife is also a doctor and uh, we, uh, we looked out our wills that we've written. We've got four kids and I showed where the wills were to my eldest son because we did think well maybe both of us could come down with coronavirus we could end up in hospital one of us could die maybe both of us and my 16 year old would need to know how to sort things out I think that was a pretty somber thing I think statistically now we're all right but we didn't know enough about the virus at the time um so yes thinking about how much we depend on each other as well we're very interdependent and this virus has really taught us that more than anything else. If you go back to October, sometime around October 2019, one person somewhere in the world had a few tiny virus particles, so small you can't see them with most microscopes. And yet that infection spread across the whole planet and was enough to cause the whole planet to stop, to cause financial chaos, to cause millions of deaths. And we're interdependent. We can't just ignore people in China. We can't ignore the healthcare needs of people in South America or India. And we can't ignore, in lockdown, we, we realise when we're shut off from people how much we've missed them. Uh, there's some wonderful writing by um, a 17th century poet called John Donne. And uh, I often think back to this during coronavirus. He talks about hearing the church bell ringing in the distance because someone's funeral is taking place. And he's realising, though he doesn't know that person, it actually touches him personally. He says, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man's a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tells for thee. He's saying, even if one person in, in China dies, that affects me. And it's a tragedy when we see someone 
dying because humanity is slightly the less because someone has gone. And so it's a serious thing. Mm. Back to that poem, that, that actually ties together some of those themes, isn't it? That's that, that the interdependence and the reflection on mortality at the same time, isn't it? It is. We can, um, we can often forget about mortality and just put it off as something uncomfortable we don't want to think about. But actually, I think it's really healthy to, to have a, a view of how short our life is in the long term, because it helps us use our life correctly now to make the most of it. There's a wonderful verse in, in the Bible, Psalm 39, which says, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You've made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my ears is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. When we stop and realise that we don't have forever, we can use each day to its best. My wife's a GP and she's been having a lot of consultations, mostly via Zoom calls here in, in Oxford. And a number of people have been saying, do you know, I'm frightened of death. Um, I'm, I want to know, is, is there more beyond the grave? There's one chap who um, has been coming for sleeping tablets um, every few months for many years uh, to other doctors. And he met my wife and she said, well, why can't you sleep? And he said, every night I lie awake thinking maybe there's more to life than this. And that stopped me sleeping. Wow. And I think, and my wife both think, that um, the answer there is not benzodiazepines to, to numb the pain. It's actually to stop and think, yes, is there more to life? Uh, and when we number our life's end, and we realise how fleeting our life is, to think, well, you know, what happens beyond the grave? Mm. Well, that passage does say that, you know, as you said, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. But considering your life is like a breath and a fleeting, doesn't that make you depressed? <laughs> I used to worry about this when I was a kid. When I was 10, it kept me awake at night. And I realised that there were either, there were two options. Either we born we die and that's the end. And life is totally meaningless. Someone said we are in an infinite universe straying through an infinite nothing. Blackadder, you might know the comedian, said life is like a broken pencil, pointless. That was one option. <laughs> the other option was what I'd heard from friends at church, that uh, there was life beyond the grave and that this time that we feel trapped in and frustrated by is, is just a precursor to the life we're all meant to live. There's a great Oxford writer just down the road called C.S. Lewis who said, why is it that we're perpetually surprised by time? Uh, if it's not that there's something within us that is eternal, that was not made for time. Do you know, time and the brevity of our life is just so frustrating because every moment it is passing away and we never get it again. But, but C.S. Lewis is saying, well, the Bible claims that we're going to live in a in a universe where there is no time, we're not trapped by time. Uh, and, and if we believe that, then it's not depressing at all. Mm. So you don't think that the Bible here is diminishing the value of life by recognising its, its fleeting nature? Absolutely not. If, if there's something which is eternal which goes on, and we go on in relationship with that God who the Bible claims made us, then we can begin now in this life to know him and to, to tell others about him and, and, and to do stuff which matters. Caring for people on the wards, designing a vaccine or, or whatever we do in our job is infinitely valuable because we go on and our legacy goes on and, and the God we know goes on in eternity. Mm. So it's only if 
death is the end and there's nothing beyond, that it's all just a, a horrible mm. joke. You are a scientist and a doctor intent on increasing the number of days of people. So does that mean that you're working against what the Bible's describing here? If I didn't believe in a God, all we have is to make our lives a bit longer. And what we're doing is we're fighting the inevitable decay. As a medic, the average age of the person I look after is 82. Half the people I look after are in their 80s and 90s. And I know that even if I do my very best for them, they're going to live an extra six months. Uh, and still they're going to die. And that does seem really pointless. If, however, we're eternal beings uh, and we matter for the future, then it matters the quality of our life now. And it's right and good that whilst we have good quality of life, we can enjoy this world for longer. Um, life has value here and now. What we do within those interdependent relationships I talked about really matters. So caring for people and doing our best to help them enjoy a longer life matters because life is valuable. And God has given us this ability to, to treat people and to do modern science. Uh, and so we should use that ability. It's right to help people, isn't it? Mm. So it says that COVID's obviously taught us so many things, has forced us to think deeply and big. Uh, it can seem a bit depressing, though, but where have you found comfort or even blessing? Um, there have been some practical things. Uh, we're often busy with too many things we shouldn't be busy with. And um, since lockdown, I've spent a lot more time with my family. I've enjoyed walks every evening. I, I live just outside Oxford, beautiful countryside, and we've been able to go for a walk and um, enjoy views together as a family. So more time together has been fantastic. I've also found great comfort really in um, that hope in Jesus in eternity that I've mentioned before. I'd like to share just one more little passage from, from the Bible, the book of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 2 says, since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, since we have flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Um, I do meet many people, perhaps you've come across them too, who are held in slavery by their fear of death. This knowledge that ultimately we're going to die just incapacitates us now and stops us ever living life to the full. But um, since childhood I've known that Jesus has broken that power of death by dying and being raised to life again. He showed that he can do that for us too. And, and so I'm not a slave to death. I'm free from that. I'm, I'm not paralyzed by the worry that ultimately it's all been a waste of time. And so I can enjoy life to the full. And it's, it's okay caring for people who, who don't get better because I know that that's not just due to my incompetence. It's actually their creator giving us a, a certain amount of time. And when our time is done, then it's right that people... Um, should die. Uh, it's it's not my responsibility. Our job is to to care for people who um who are held in slavery by their fear of death, and, and to try and show them some hope there. And I really mm. believe there is hope. So, what difference then has it made to you uh, trusting in Jesus in this COVID time? Thank you. I think it's given me a confidence going to work that we do put ourselves in the line of fire. We do have the chance of catching coronavirus. And I trust that God will protect me. And I also trust that if he chooses to let me get coronavirus and die, that's, that's his good timing and it's not something to be frightened of. And he will provide for my, for my family and, 
so it gives that reassurance. It also gives me hope for those I know who've had a faith and who've died. There have actually been some people in Oxford uh, who I've known have had a strong personal faith and, and who've died of coronavirus, but it gives me great comfort there. Uh, and it gives me an urgency to, to want to share this truth with other people. You know, there's been a, a real, a really interesting phenomena here in, in Oxford and UK, and I don't know if it's been the same in Australia, but a, a hunger, particularly amongst the age group of 16 to 24 year olds, who've not been very engaged with these sort of issues we're talking about before. Mm. Uh, they've been clicking and going online, and actually 24% of that young age group have joined an online church service in the last six months. That's phenomenal. People are wanting to find out more about whether there is life beyond the grave. Mm. And so you go away and think about it and look at the evidence for yourself. Um, are you convinced that this is something true and solid, or is it just um, wish and make-believe? They've been thinking it through, and that's been really exciting. Mm. And obviously truth is important to you as a scientist. Absolutely. I, I'm at New College, Oxford. One of my colleagues is called Richard Dawkins, and... Um, he says that um, science is the unbiased quest for truth. Actually, we both look at the world as scientists and come up with slightly different conclusions, but ultimately that's what we should be doing, is saying, well, what does the data show? Where does it lead us? Uh, for example, with coronavirus, do the data show that wearing face masks help? Uh, yes, they do. Uh, they reduce infection by about 67%. So, well, we should all wear face masks then in certain situations. Uh, you could tell you the same about faith. Did Jesus' resurrection really happen? Did he conquer death or not? Well, what is the evidence of the empty tomb, of the eyewitnesses, of the effects of people's transformed lives down the generations? It, does that evidence point towards Jesus' true resurrection or not? Uh, if it does, then we have to investigate these things and, and follow where the evidence leads. Mm. You could say, again, with a clinical trial of a vaccine, are we going to use a vaccine which has not been tested? Russia are offering that to us. Uh, I would say, as a scientist, we need to find out, does it truly work? We've got to do a robust clinical trial. They're happening now in Brazil. If it shows that vaccine doesn't work, then we should not use it. If it shows it does work, then it's going to be the most important discovery this millennium. Mm. So, Tim, what has COVID taught us? Uh, so COVID has taught us that we depend on one another. We're not an island. We're all involved in humanity. It's taught us that we're finite. We all do have mortality of our own to face up to and that we need to use this life wisely. It's short. So let's not just be busy being busy, but we need to think about what we're doing. And it's taught us that it really matters what happens when we die. And it's worth looking into the evidence for whether that's going to be just the end or an eternity of God, in which case we need to prepare for that, just like we needed to prepare for this pandemic and the next one. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, what has COVID taught us from Psalm 39.4? Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dr. Tim Hinks. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.